It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A landmark trial is kicking off in Minnesota, the first time one of the thousands of cases against e-cigarette maker Juul is going to play out in a courtroom. Minnesota accuses Juul and Altria of hooking a generation of young people on their products by deception and slick advertising, and the state wants the companies to pay up for the public costs of addressing an uptick in youth vaping and smoking. Joining me is healthcare attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. Harry, Minnesota is using the theory of public nuisance, a theory that was used against the tobacco industry in the 1990s. Tell us about it. Yeah, so a public nuisance legal theory, it was a theory that actually grew out of cases where there had been some kind of public harm, like damage to, you know, water sources and from pollution and things like that. And the idea was that Essentially, you could hold private parties responsible for the social costs, the costs that they impose on society. So we've been seeing through the opioid cases of the last few years, the attempt to extend that theory against drug makers and pharmacies that allowed easy access. And the state of Minnesota is trying to do the same thing here, essentially to say that Juul, you know, the e-cigarette company, that Altria, the biggest of the tobacco companies, essentially caused great harm to the public by encouraging the sale of these e-cigarette flavors to teenagers and to underage consumers. Do you think that the public nuisance theory is a good fit for what it's accusing Juul of? I think it is a little bit of a stretch personally. I think that this issue of underage consumers smoking or engaging in unhealthy behaviors is a more complicated problem. It's not a clean fit to me that Juul was the entire problem. I think there's a broader question about our consumer culture that made this product so explosively popular with kids. So while I do think that the marketing practices were reprehensible, I'm not sure that it's a clear line to say that they were the cause of all these problems. I also think it's unclear. We won't know for years what the long-term health effects will be of kids starting to smoke, you know, in in eighth grade. And certainly there's been an issue of teenagers, of older teenagers, 10th graders, 11th graders smoking that predate e-cigarettes. Minnesota says in, in papers that in the 14 years between 2000 and 2014, Minnesota high schoolers smoking at least one cigarette in the last 30 days dropped from 32.4% down to 10.6%. Six years later, 19.3% of high schoolers reported having vaped at least once in the last 30 days. Does that make their case about public health or do they need to do much more? 
I think that's a helpful fact to them. I just don't know if it's the whole story. I think the reality is like vaping in general has become a more socially acceptable and more popular alternative to smoking. So even as we've seen a decline in general rates of cigarette smoking, you know, with greater awareness that vaping is, is a slightly healthier choice of an overall very unhealthy activity, you know, it's increased. So I think it's helpful. I just don't know. I don't think it's a slam dunk. Jewel and Altria are trying to shift the blame to the state of Minnesota. Minnesota got billions of dollars from tobacco settlements over the last decade, but spent less than 1% on prevention efforts, instead using the funds to bankroll unrelated products like the Minnesota Vikings football stadium. This is a really interesting argument. If you go back to 1998, the various states won something like $205, $206 billion. I think the state of Minnesota alone got over $6 billion in the tobacco settlements with all the big tobacco companies, including the company that's now uh, Altria, right, that used to be Philip Morris. And so there was an enormous opportunity for not only Minnesota, but for all of the states to use that money to really create better public health programs, better education programs to reduce smoking and educate people about the dangers of smoking and intervene in trends like this. And I think that Jewel and Altria have a good case to make that not only Minnesota, but literally every state in the country basically wasted that opportunity. When we look at what they did with the money, they mostly plugged holes in state budgets and just considered it sort of a slush fund to be used whenever there was a financial need. It's hard to find any examples, and Minnesota is no exception, of a state that really used the money comprehensively for effective public health related to the danger of smoking. Do Altria and Juul have the same defense, or are they pointing fingers? Juul is the main target here. The Juul Lab is the company that developed this and marketed this, and they're a victim of their own success with all of the flavors that they came out with, mango and other things that really appealed to kids. Altria has the misfortune of having been a major investor, I think something like 12 to $13 billion investment in Juul, but it's not to me at all clear why Altria is sitting side by side defending this case with Juul. Frankly, it looks like they are there because they are such a big player in the overall tobacco industry and not because they were so singularly attached to this product. In fact, Altria has completely divested itself of its position in Juul, which I think was never more than a small minority percentage. Ironically, Altria has actually invested in a competing product, Enjoy, which is competing with Juul. And so it's not clear if their appearance here is more about optics and having you know, the biggest tobacco company in the country so much as related to their actual activity in the state of Minnesota related to e-cig. Also for the deep pocket? Yeah, no question. As a parent of children, I, I share the concern about the effective, dangerously effective marketing of e-cigarettes, but it does seem that Altria is at the table mostly, not only for their, their, their size and visibility, but also for the potential resources that they can add to the pool of funds. So I, I agree with your comment about them being a deep pocket here. As far as if the jury thinks the state has some responsibility here, is this a case where the jury can allocate damages? Yeah, absolutely. The, the jury does have the ability to attribute comparative amounts and to assess responsibility. So, yeah, it's a tricky case for Altria because it, obviously the goal is to show that this is a bigger, more complex problem that isn't specifically tied to this, but also to try to minimize its share of any damages that are awarded. So what's the question the jury will have to answer? 
I mean, the, the question is really whether Juul engaged in deceptive marketing practices that targeted Minnesota youth. And so that's really the claim that's being made, essentially that there was some kind of fraudulent practice, you know, that there was actually intention to lull kids into taking up vaping in the marketing that they use, rather than this being a case of kids being marketing, you know, that was intended for adults, that in fact, the entire strategy of Juul was to hook a whole new generation of young kids on vaping. Juul has faced thousands of lawsuits across the nation, but most have settled. And it said that Minnesota had rejected settlement offers similar to those reached with other states, which provided, quote, hundreds of millions of dollars to further combat underage use and develop cessation programs in those states. So is this for the good of Minnesota or is this, you know, for making a name and making a statement about these products. I'm just trying to figure out why they wouldn't settle. Yeah, it it definitely is an aggressive strategy here on the part of the state of Minnesota. It seems interesting that the state attorney general, Keith Ellison, is actually taking the lead in trying this case. He's certainly someone who has a colorful political history nationally. And I do think there's certainly a question of whether there's some grandstanding, you know, whether it's to create a name for him or just to make a statement by taking such an aggressive position on this case rather than following the path of other states and and pursuing a quicker settlement. The state of Minnesota hasn't set a number for damages, but Ellison said that it could be in the ballpark with Minnesota's landmark $7.1 billion settlement with the tobacco industry in 1998. But wasn't that a bigger case, the case with the tobacco industry, and didn't it go back decades? It's really hard to imagine how the problem of Juul could be taken as equivalent as the 1998 tobacco settlement, which was really addressing decades and decades of actually deceptive marketing where the tobacco industry knew how dangerous smoking was to American health and clearly did everything it could to block that information from coming out and to keep pushing a product that it knew was deadly. So the conduct here happened in a much shorter period of time. I don't think Juul even entered the market until 2016. And I think the main period we're focusing on is like 2016 to 2019. So it seems like this should be ultimately a drop in the bucket compared to the broader tobacco settlement. And again, it does to me raise questions why Attorney General Ellison is taking such an aggressive position here. Not to say that this isn't a problem, but to suggest that it's on par with the whole tobacco crisis seems a bit much. If the state of Minnesota did win here, would it help other states to get leverage to reach settlements? I mean, how would it affect states outside of Minnesota or, you know, the general population outside of Minnesota? I mean, I think if a jury is receptive and gives Minnesota, gives Attorney General Ellison a multi-billion dollar or even a billion dollar settlement here, I think it will embolden other states and it will concern Juul and potentially Altria and sort of increase the numbers that are being paid out, which are already significant and in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So I do think that this case, in a sense, will either strengthen or weaken the assessments on both sides of what this case is worth and what this harm is worth and what it's going to take to settle these cases. So there is exposure here. If Minnesota wins this case, there's going to be more states that are willing to be more aggressive and push for more, which is going to be um, obviously bad for Juul and Altria. And if Minnesota loses the case, will will Jewel and Altria be hesitant to settle these cases? 
again, I, to me, it's more like, I think of it a little bit like a stock, right? So if Minnesota loses this case, then the value of the claims that other states and jurisdictions could make against Juul, against Altria, will be a little bit lower. And Juul's already shown a desire to settle these cases. I just think it may be slightly more aggressive and settle for a little bit less. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that these companies have set aside huge reserves, you know, to pay off claims here, not because they agree that there was any deceptive marketing, but simply because it's not a popular position to be defending marketing that clearly impacted kids and drove more kids to vaping. And these companies just need to do what they can to get rid of these cases as efficiently as they can. So I I think this case is going to be significant. One way or the other, it's going to make these cases around the country a little bit more valuable or a little bit less valuable. Critics of the public nuisance theory say that it allows executive officers like state attorneys general to improperly step in and replace the role of administrative agencies and lawmakers, which should be the ones regulating the industry. Do you agree with that or disagree? I mean, I'm not a fan of the expansion of public nuisance theory. I think that it played a very valuable role in America when it came to some of the terrible environmental harm that American industry imposed on different parts of the country, where we saw long-term real environmental costs that were imposed, you know, when toxins were spread in particular parts of the country. I think these kind of social behavior-oriented public nuisance cases, as in the case of opioids and here, are really questionable. You can see why it's very exciting to states and to executive leaders, but I agree that the questions of the long-term harm and long-term responsibility are probably going to be addressed more accurately and with a little bit less passion and uncertainty in other places than putting them before juries. So I I agree with that criticism. The trial's expected to last three weeks, so we'll find out just how the public nuisance theory works here. You know, this case makes me wonder what's the next issue that we're going to see where Americans engaging in dangerous, unhealthy behavior is going to lead to a public nuisance theory. Um, I'm still waiting for the sugar industry, you know, for the first public nuisance case involving Uh food. I don't know where it's going to be, but I think this kind of reflects the trend in American society where, you know, on the one hand, it's good, in my opinion, that we're, we're thinking about where the dangers to consumers are. You know, on the other hand, it's not always easy to get right exactly who's to blame. Thanks, Harry. That's healthcare attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The United Nations has released an alarming report on the threat to the world's climate. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres compared climate change to a ticking time bomb and called the report a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. We have never been better equipped to solve the climate challenge, but we must move into warp speed climate action now. We don't have a moment to lose. And 16 kids in Montana are not losing any time. They're suing the state for robbing them of a clean and healthful environment guaranteed in the state's constitution with its energy policy and extensive support of fossil fuels. It will be the first trial involving a constitutional climate case, and it begins on June 12th in Helena. Joining me is Michael Gerard, director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. Tell us about the complaint filed by these Montana kids. These young people are suing the state of Montana in Montana state court, saying that the state's fossil fuel-friendly policies violate the state constitution. The Montana state constitution has a clause guaranteeing a right to a clean and healthy environment, and the plaintiffs are saying that the state is violating that right by allowing so much coal and oil and gas drilling. And... Montana added that language in 1972. Has it done anything since 1972 to live up to that? Very little. They are one of the major fossil fuel producing uh, states in the country. What is the state's response to this? The state says that provision of the Constitution does not uh, really mean that they have to do anything differently than what they're doing. They're saying that the Young people don't have standing to sue, and most importantly, that it's not the job of the courts to set the state's energy and climate policy, that it's up to the elected legislature and governor. The plaintiffs are kids who have different stories about how climate change affected them? That's right. The, uh, they all have been affected by whether it's extreme heat or a rainfall or drought or other kinds of issues so that they are working to establish that they have been personally affected by climate change. The trial court, I, then I assume, has said that they do have standing. Yeah, so far. They may have to make additional showings in court, but so far they have standing, and so we have a trial set for June. Is this trial a first? There have been almost no trials on climate change at all. This is the first one that is asserting anything like these theories. There was one case more than 20 years ago from Vermont about motor vehicle standards and another one a couple of years ago in New York about securities disclosure. But this is the first one that's really getting into the merits of these issues. Why haven't those other cases gone to trial? What stopped them? The other cases have pretty much all been dismissed uh, by the courts before the trial. The courts have found that there weren't adequate legal bases to bring them uh, or that it wasn't the job of the courts to decide these kinds of cases. But this is a case uniquely under the state constitution of Montana, and so it comes up in a much different way. But I should add that just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court of Hawaii 
said that the environmental clause in the Hawaii Constitution uh, required the state to act on climate change. Uh, That was a legal matter without a trial, but we're seeing more and more of these state constitutional provisions having real teeth. What kind of testimony do you expect to hear at trial? I think we'll hear from climate scientists who are brought in by uh, by the plaintiffs to testify that climate change is happening, that it's mostly a result of fossil fuel combustion, that those fossil fuels are being uh, burnt because of the policies of the state of Montana, uh, in part, and that there are things that could be done to reduce the use and combustion of fossil fuels. There will also be testimony about the negative effects that these individual children have suffered. We'll see if Montana tries to uh, rebut the scientific evidence. No court uh, in the world really has seriously questioned climate science. We'll see if this is a first. Would they be able to have, you know, scientists come in and say, this is not climate change? They can try. There are a very, very small number of scientists who say that. You know, it's in complete opposition to overwhelming scientific consensus, but we'll see what see what tactics the state uh, tries to pull out. So this case has been nearly a decade in the making? It's been going on for that long? Well, the planning has for it has been going on for some time, and we've seen uh, these uh, cases brought under similar theories going on for quite a few years. The plaintiffs, what kind of relief are they seeking? Well, initially they're seeking a declaration from the court that the policies and actions of Montana violate the state constitution and are illegal. Uh, But beyond that, uh, they're asking the court to uh, require the state to come up with a plan to greatly reduce fossil fuel use and emissions. We'll see how far the court goes. That would be an extraordinary relief. No matter who prevails, it's likely this is going to be appealed to the state Supreme Court? Yes, I think it's likely that whoever loses, the loser will appeal a case to the decision to the state Supreme Court. So would a decision for the kids in this case have an impact outside Montana? Uh, yes, it would be a very strong signal about the potential role of the, of the courts. We saw a a comparable situation a couple of years ago where the Supreme Court of the Netherlands ordered that country's government to greatly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and that helped spur quite a few similar lawsuits in other countries around the world. If the plaintiffs win this case, we may see more litigation using similar theories in other uh, places of the U.S. You know, I remember the case of Juliana v. United States, and that also young people, but against the federal government. What happened to that case? Ultimately, the uh, Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in a two-to-one decision uh, dismissed the case, saying that it was not the role of the courts to be studying energy and climate policy. The plaintiffs have now made a motion to the district court to amend their complaint to seek less uh, dramatic relief and the court has been considering that motion for about a year. <laughs> That's a long time to consider a motion. Um, so why do you think it is that children and teenagers are so concerned about climate change when you think about teenagers, you think about them doing more fun things than worrying about the climate? Well, it's their future that's at stake. 
by the time they get to be old men and women, the climate could be in what much worse shape than it is now. And so they have a particularly strong stake in, in, the, in the future, much more than those of us who won't be around that long. And now let's change the conversation a lot to a tiny island in the Pacific trying to do something about climate change outside its borders. The tiny Pacific island nation of Vanuatu is trying to get in front of the International Court of Justice in The Hague with the question of what are the legal obligations of the major emitting countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions so that the small island nations don't drown. In order to get before the International Court of Justice, it's necessary to have a majority vote of the members of the United Nations General Assembly. That vote is coming up on Thursday, and it now appears that after several years of campaigning, Vanuatu has the votes, and it looks almost certain that this motion is going to pass and the case will go to The Hague. What impact would a ruling by The Hague have? So they don't have the ability to order countries to do uh, anything. However, many domestic courts, courts of a lot of other countries, have been issuing rulings based on international law and human rights theories uh, requiring their countries to do more on climate change. A decision from the International Court of Justice would be the most definitive statement yet about how international law and human rights law apply to climate change. And it could spur even stronger decisions by the domestic courts of more countries. To someone looking from the outside at these climate change cases, it seems as if we hear a lot about the cases and then disappointing conclusions for those who want to fight climate change. I mean, even, you know, the Supreme Court last year in the West Virginia EPA case. Are climate change activists making headway? They are making headway. Not enough. Uh, But uh, back in 2007, the Supreme Court, in a case called Massachusetts versus EPA, said that EPA had the power under the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases. Based on that, the Obama administration, uh, using the Supreme Court decision, um, uh, did many things that reduced greenhouse gas emissions. There are lots of other decisions out there. There's not a, there's not a magic bullet. There's no one decision that is going to solve climate change. But a lot of these are incrementally adding up to real progress. And are there some states where it's working better than others? Well, we certainly see a lot of action in states like California, which has long been the leader, New York, Massachusetts, Washington. All of them are doing um, uh, much more on, on climate change than most of the rest of the country. These were not spurred by losses. These were mostly spurred by the local political support for uh, for action on climate change. And do you feel that more people get climate change than did, let's say, five years ago? More people know about it and are attuned to it? Yes, the uh, polling is clear that a larger percentage of the public um, is alarmed about climate change. And the scientific evidence that's coming out certainly adds to that alarm. There are still those who uh, don't believe it or don't believe it's serious, but that seems to be a shrinking number. And internationally, are you seeing more use of the courts to combat climate change? On Thursday as well, the uh, European Court of Human Rights is hearing two climate change cases, uh, one brought by a group of uh, 
senior women in Switzerland, another brought by the former mayor of a of a town in France that's having a lot of sea level rise problems. So we're seeing an intensification of the use of the courts around the world to fight climate change. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Michael Gerard, director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.